Welcome to ASRM Today Book Review, a podcast that interviews the authors who dive deeper into the field of reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes. Today on the book review, I have the pleasure of speaking with Hank Greeley about his latest book, CRISPR People, The Science and Ethics of Editing People. He is the Dean F. and Kate Edelman Johnson Professor of Law and Professor by Courtesy of Genetics at Stanford University. He specializes in ethical, legal, and social issues arising from advances in the biosciences, particularly from genetics, neuroscience, and human stem cell research. He chairs the California Advisory Committee on Human Stem Cell Research and the Steering Committee of the Stanford University Center for Biomedical Ethics, and also directs the Stanford Center for Law and the Biosciences in the Stanford Program in Neuroscience and Society. Professor Greeley, welcome to the book review. Thank you so much for having me on. Now, in the book, you describe yourself as a recovering lawyer. How how did the study of genetics become such a fascination for you? You know, I think I could probably change that now to a recovered lawyer. It's been 36 years, (laughs) over 36 years. I I don't lean in. I don't get the urge anymore. Um, Although I still pay my bar dues every year, and I don't know why. Uh, So I became a law professor in 1985. I was hired by Stanford to teach oil and gas law because I had um, worked at the Department of Energy. Stanford had had the country's two leading oil and gas law scholars. They both retired. Stanford faculty wrongly thought that the Department of Energy had something to do with oil and gas law. Who was I to correct them? And the connection to genetics, I think, Jeff, should be obvious, but it isn't. (laughs) Uh, In the interim, I'd married a, a, a physician. And so I started teaching health law. And around 1991, I decided I had to make a choice between the energy law course that I had turned my oil and gas class into and health law. Energy law, the big issue is going to be climate change. I didn't think we'd have the political will to do anything significant, so that would be depressing. Health law, we were going to get universal coverage, and that was going to be exciting. So I went with health law. Two years later, the Clinton health plan crashed and burned. But happily for me, the Human Genome Project was starting up, and I'd always been interested in science. And so I got involved in a couple of genetics projects, and one thing led to another. And for the next 30 years, I've been working on a variety of ethical, legal, and social issues in genetics, neuroscience, stem cell research, assisted reproduction, and other bright, shiny objects that catch my eye. You describe it as, as almost as like a cast of characters in, in this book. Uh, a lot of the professors and, and, and uh, uh, scientists that work at Stanford, and you give very lengthy bios on them. That I'm assuming that that also helped. You know, you you having these relationships with them sort of led you into into this area. Yeah, although the causal connections, I mean, the, the timing's a little backwards. I got into the area before I got to know most of these people, but <laughs> my last bio class honestly, was in 10th grade when we barely knew how to spell DNA. Uh, and much of what I've learned, I've learned from people, from talking to people who turn out to be amazingly willing often to tell you about what they do. They love what they do. They don't get willing listeners all the time. And if you can show them that, that you know enough that they're not wasting their time, people will will kindly spend lots and lots of time explaining things to you. So I don't know whether I actually name, I certainly didn't name check them all in the acknowledgements, but almost every scientist I've met and had a conversation with has played an important part in my education. 
You discuss it even though you use CRISPR to describe a specific technique, that the general topic of the book is genome editing, or more specifically, human germline genome editing. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because you, you, you go to great lengths to make sure that, that people aren't confused in the book. Sure. Uh, and I do think that's important. The human part is important uh, because we care a lot more and are a lot more risk averse with respect to human babies than we are to say mosquito babies or even puppies. Um, but the germline versus non-germline distinction is really important to a lot of people. The germline is the part of you that potentially lives forever. It is your eggs and your sperm and the cells that lead to your eggs and your sperm. Those are the only parts that you pass on to the next generation. The other roughly 35 trillion human cells in your body, uh, we, we lump into a class and call them the somatic cells from the Greek word soma for body. And those live and die with you. So if I were to alter the genome of your skin cells, those skin cells live, they die, you live, you die, the skin cells go with you. It doesn't affect the next generation. If I alter the genome of your sperm cells or the spermatogonia that give rise to your sperm cells, then potentially at least I've altered the next generation and the next generation, the next generation, and so on. That line between somatic and germline is really important for many people. Uh, the idea that it's okay if you change the genome of one person usually through gene therapy to try to fix them, fix a genetic disease, but it doesn't pass on. But if you're altering the genome of future generations as well, that's a different issue and requires much greater uh, concern or should be banned entirely. So that's, that's the big underlying debate now in this issue, whether human germline genome editing should always be a bad thing or whether it should only be viewed as a bad thing unless or until it's proven safe and effective. Somatic cell, that's gene therapy. And there's very little, you know, there are issues with it, like $2.1 million per dose and so on. Uh, there are ethics issues with all new technologies, but there are no deep issues with it. No one is deeply concerned. Almost no one is deeply concerned about changing the genome of your body cells, because that just, at least in, at least directly, that just directly affects you. Although, of course, if we've cured you of a nasty disease, that's affected only your genome, but it affects all the people around you too. I was shocked that there was there's this one passage in the book. You, you're you're building your case as it is, and I'll get more to that uh, in a moment. But you you talk about uh, regulation and FDA approvals and all of these things. And I just want to read for, for our listeners real quick how you how you summarized how it is for the United States. Because this just absolutely, I, I had so many conversations with people after reading this. I was like, this is, this is well, it's just, it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, so, so you say in the book, so to summarize for the United States, <clears throat> genome editing for human reproduction is only legal with FDA approval, either for research or for clinical use. But the FDA is forbidden to consider or allow such use. In no application to FDA for an IND will even be considered received, presumably no matter how many witnesses can swear that it was handed to an FDA official. And that is without any substantive ban on human germline genome editing, just the regulatory system's normal IND process bolstered by a one-year-at-a-time congressional prohibition 
on letting that system consider such <laughs> applications. So, I, I, I guess to, like, my question then is, is that even though you go through this in the book, as I said, this list is, what does this just go round and round every year then? So let me give you a general answer first and then a specific uh, answer. The general answer is yes, that seems insane. But the fact that my sperm cells spent the first few weeks of my existence in something called a yolk sac outside the body of my embryo and then migrated back into the body of the embryo also sounds insane. Law and biology are deeply congruent and that neither one of them makes sense in its details. Neither one was designed. They evolved. They're products of history and chance and you know, some in both cases, actually, some natural selection laws that work out too badly either get ignored or get repealed, just like gene variations that work out too badly. So, yes, it makes no sense, and it's very much like biology in that. You know, trace trace the uh, course of your vagus nerve, and you've got another example. But to your specific question, yes, every year this gets attached as a writer to the relevant appropriations bill, or since Congress can't seem to get its act together to pass appropriations bills very often, the continuing resolution that keeps things going. One year, the first year the Democrats retook control of the House of Representatives, I think it was 2017 or 2019, one of those, um, the Democrats made noises about taking it out or at least holding hearings because these writers, there are no hearings on them. They're not discussed on the floor. They're just sort of midnight sneaked in. Um, and there was enough backlash that they withdrew that idea. Mostly these things live and die for a year. But things like the Dickie Wicker Amendment, which prohibits federal funding for research that risks harm to embryos, that was first added in 1995. And that's been added every single year since then for 26 straight years. So it's a screwy way to do legislation, uh, but it's one of the ways we do it. My guest today on the book review is uh, Professor Hank Greeley. Uh, we're talking about his latest book, CRISPR People, The Science and Ethics of Editing People. This book is so hard. It's so wonderful. It's so hard to describe. We were talking right before we went uh, on, on air uh, about it. I was, I was letting you know about that. I, I felt like this, this book reads in so many different ways. Just to let people know, at times this reads like a great detective story of, you know, and you're, you're, you're giving us the background and we're tracking down this mysterious doctor who's on par with the tale of a misguided Dr. Frankenstein. You know, these impossible fictions scarily come to life. Uh, I, I want to ask your opinion here. What, what is it about rogue doctors and scientists that not only should the profession be worried about most, is it birthed from a culture, and you, you do touch on this, is it birthed of a culture of trying to be first? You know, in science, to, to, is, that, is that partly to blame for, for, for what's happening? So first, there are lots of scientists in the world, and not very many of them are rogue. <laughs> there are very few rogue scientists, in my, as far as I can tell. And part of that is it's hard to be a rogue. I mean, you've got to get funding. You've got, got to pay for the lab. You've got approvals and boards and committees. You've got to satisfy with things. One of the things that I wish I had stressed more in the book was how unusually financially independent Hu Jiangqi, the Chinese scientist involved, actually was. He had a, a pot of, of money that he could spend any way he wanted for a variety of reasons. 
that most scientists would only dream of. So I don't think rogues are common, but I do think there is an impulse and it will strike some people more strongly than others. I mean, human personality types are bell curves and most people are in the middle. Uh, I'd say huh, on this particular curve is probably several standard deviations to the either left or right. Uh, the desire for fame and glory. Um, and if you've got it, something like this looks pretty attractive. I think Hu thought he was going to be acclaimed a great hero and a visionary. I bet he still thinks he will be, but by future generations. That Galileo myth that, yeah, they put me in house arrest for now, but eventually the future will look back on me kindly and on my oppressors as, as bad people. Um, that's, that's a tempting myth of its own. I mean, we, we live by lots of these deep myths. And I think the underlying myth here, you can date back at least as far as Prometheus. It's there are things that man should not know. There are things that are presumptuous that we go too far and we are tempted to go too far and it causes us problems. And certainly uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is the, well, it's 200 years old, so modern may or may not fit, but it's, it is, I think, the modern source of that myth, the, the modern touchstone for it. You could talk about Faust as well, but um, that is it. That's a trope that we know of. We get it in drama, in literature, in movies all the time. And one of the things I think science has to be worried about is that the public believes that happens a lot more than it does. And so science and scientists need to be really careful not to play into that myth. One of the ways you avoid playing into that myth is tell people in advance what you're planning to do and why. Now, disconcerting surprises are a bad thing for science. Would you would you consider then that that you bring up you know because I mentioned Frankenstein and then you do, I, I I do I always love how it is still titled the, I think the Kotal is the modern Prometheus yeah <laughs> which you know uh, or even Faust but. When, when you were writing this, did, did you feel like you were shaping a cautionary tale for, for not just for scientists, but for the public in general? Um, yes, that wasn't foremost in my mind. I was just trying to get the damn thing done. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, the, the, the number of verbs and tenses, the, the, the use of tenses in English is really a valuable thing about the language. I have written a book is a great positive statement. I am writing a book, not so positive. <laughs> so yes, I did. It is supposed to be in part a warning or at least a, an illumination for non-scientist readers that science doesn't usually work this way, that this is a myth. And for scientists that, you know, a lot of people think that this is how science regularly works and you don't want to, you don't want to aid and abet that view because it's bad for your work and it's bad for science. And I think things that are bad for science on balance in the long run are bad for us all. I'm, I am a believer in science um, with all its warts. Hu Jiangkui happens to be one of the more recent larger warts. Well, I just, I also want to mention that, by the way, uh, you were very prescient about the Nobel Prize winner for 2020. Ah. Or winners, I should say, in, in, in the plural sense, because many times during the book, uh, you, you say, I think this is going to happen, uh, and I've re, you know I've, I'm in the editing process, but I don't know six months from now. But you were you were right on the money with that one. 
Yeah, the book didn't come out until February of this year, and uh, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier won it in November of last year. So it was between when the final proofs went in and when the book came out that they got awarded it. I, I was quite pleased. There are, you know, as these prizes are dumb in some sense. 300 people contributed to this discovery. And in fact, it wasn't, CRISPR wasn't invented by Dalva and Charpentier, as they'll tell you, it was invented by some bacterium three billion years ago. We don't know its name, so we can't give it a prize. But if you, and there are at least six people, and I think I talk about this in the book, who I think had a decent claim to that prize. But because of rules of the committee that are not in Nobel's will, they restrict it to only three people. And if you're going to pick three, finding the third was really difficult. But the first two, I think, clearly had to be Jennifer and Emmanuel. So I, I was quite pleased for them. I've gotten to know Jennifer Doudna a little bit through this. And I just have an enormous uh, respect for her and affection. I think she's a great scientist and uh, a lovely person. And all of us at, at ASRM absolutely agree. Uh, who've had the chance to, uh, to, to, to uh, speak with her. I say that even though she's at the University of California at Berkeley, which is a Stanford alumnus and longtime Stanford faculty member, I'm not supposed to say anything nice about. But Jennifer oh, yes. Down has a good thing about Berkeley. Oh, well, you know, that's to give it a very uh, uh, low level comparison uh, here in Alabama. Uh, there's the Alabama Auburn thing. Um, so <laughs> we completely understand. Uh, I've had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Professor Hank Greeley today about his latest book, CRISPR People, The Science and Ethics of Editing People. It is available now everywhere you can get your books. Please rate and review the show on Google, Apple, or however you get your podcast. Sir, it's it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you, and I hope to have you uh, on again. Let's, I, you have many books, and I would I would love to, to get you back on and, and talk about some of those. Well, thanks. I've enjoyed it myself. Fantastic. Very nice talking to you. Absolutely. I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is the ASRM Today Book Review. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today Series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.